All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, I want to start off with just talking. I, I guess it's kind of like a confession. I need to confess something. Um, my favorite people on earth are middle schoolers. Now, some of you have already just thought, like, for a second now, maybe I'm not quite right in the head. But I, I, I really like junior hires. I like middle schoolers. And I actually like the boys. I, I think they're a lot of fun. I think that they're, they're just a group that, for whatever reason, I just love being around. I, I like high schoolers too, but middle schoolers are probably my favorite. Uh, and it, it wasn't always that case. It wasn't always, you know, I just was like from, from birth, I can't wait to teach junior hires. I did have some interesting experiences with junior hires. I taught them as a high school teacher and a junior high teacher. But I think the most interesting experience I ever had with junior hires was when I took a bunch of them to Washington, D.C. and New York without their parents. And um, so I didn't originally sign up for this deal. It kind of got hoisted on me. Uh, we had 50 high schoolers and a few parents, and we had about 20 junior hires, and eight of them were boys. And so I thought, oh, yeah, you know, I'm the one leading this. I got to make sure these kids don't die. And so I'm going to watch the eight boys. And so no big deal in D.C., you know, there's, it's, it's kind of wide open and you have people going in and out of museums and we just had everybody partner up. It was great. But New York City is a much different feel. Uh, you know, walking through Chinatown, Times Square, Uptown, all these different places with eight junior high boys. And, and here's the kicker. I didn't know them very well. I didn't know them very well. And so I was like the blonde kid, the dark-haired kid, the other dark-haired kid, the kid who always wears a hoodie, and then the kid with the hat. I mean, that was kind of the, 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 the way I knew them. But really, this is what I did. I kind of kept them all in front of me, and I kept doing this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The entire time. And there was this one we went into, if you've been to Chinatown, you know that in Chinatown they sell authentic designer stuff, right? It's all authentic. Chanel, whatever, it's all, right? But if you ask really nice, they take you in the back room where the really real stuff is. The only thing about the back room is it's a back room and they close the door and you're in there. So we went into this one place and they were all looking at different things, buying purses from their moms and stuff like that. And they all come out, and I'm like, one, two, three, four, five. Ooh, wait. One, two, three. We are missing somebody. What, what happened? And we go into the store, and I'm looking around, and they're not in the store. I'm like, what the heck? Oh, my gosh. Oh, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to not bring a kid home. What do I do? And all of a sudden, the wall opens up with this secret door, and out come three boys who overpaid for fake purses. And I was like, oh, praise the Lord. Whew. I didn't lose the one with the hat. Yes. Right? Now, I, I say this, and I, I tell you this story, one, because it's humorous, and, and nothing, you know, softens up a crowd like some humor, but I say this because this is exactly the opposite of the God spoken about in this parable today. The God of the hundred sheep, the God who goes for the one. And I'll tell you, we'll, we'll, you'll see why as we go through here and how it's totally different than my, hey, there's the hoodie kid. Hey, there's the blonde one. And counting them up, we'll see how God views us if we're his sheep 
way differently than that. So if you haven't already, open up to Matthew chapter 18. And really our our main idea here is that God's compassion and his mercy as a good shepherd makes him ever vigilant in his care for us. There's great joy in God when he grabs one of his wandering sheep and brings them back. I'm reminded of John chapter 18, verse 9, where he says, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Of those you've given me, not a single one will be lost. Now, this parable is very familiar. As a matter of fact, you're probably familiar with the other version of this parable from Luke chapter 15. It's a very, very famous parable. It's the same thing. 100 sheep, 99, and goes and gets the one. Except for, in Luke's parable, it's about going and getting someone who's not saved. He's going and getting someone who's not a follower of Jesus. Getting someone who belongs to a different sheep pen. This one we're dealing with today is about Jesus' sheep. It's about God's sheep. Look at how Luke 15 ends. This is at the end of that parable. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See, so he's, he's going and getting another sheep and bringing them in to the fold, as opposed to this one, which is, these are my sheep and one's missing. Now, people will go, oh, that just means these parables don't fit. I think Jesus is smart enough, maybe, you know, being God and all, that he could use a parable multiple ways. And don't we see that sometimes? People take a story and you can teach, a, a para, a, teach a, a something morally to your kid and then you use the same story over here and it's a different moral, not a contrary moral, but something else. I think Jesus does that. So what do we learn from these parables? Well, Both parables are not about that there's only a hundred people in heaven. These parables are about the shepherd. They're about the character of the shepherd. In Luke, it's all about Jesus going and saving those who need to be saved. In Matthew, it's about finding those who've wandered away. It's about God pursuing and bringing back those who are not there. And the best news of it all is that he does it for his joy. He does it for his pleasure. He says, I get joy by going and bringing a wayward sheep back to me. Now, some of you here are here today because God did that. He went and he grabbed you. You were wandering away, and he said, no, no, over here, sheep. Others of you had that happen a long time ago, and you're still here because of that. Some of you may be in the midst of wandering, and the Lord's going to get you. Not in a bad way, okay? Not going to get you like the boogeyman but he's going to help you see the truth and bring you back. So where are we in Matthew? Well, we're 18 chapters in, and this 18th chapter is the first set of commandments he gives to the church. All of chapter 18 is about here's how you do church. And what's interesting about this is if, if I was to pull you all before the service and say, what are we called to do? I think most of you would go to the very end of Matthew, and you'd recite the Great Commission, right? Go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, making disciples, right? That's the whole big picture, right? But we're still about six months away in Matthew's time from him giving that command. So here, this is the bedrock. This is the foundation. See, the Great Commission is the goal of the church. It's the purpose 
It's what we are to go and do. It's the mission. Today is the means. Today's the how. Today's the bedrock that we have to be able to have in order to walk out these doors and witness to a world that needs it. It's to make a church that's strong. Make a church that's a a functioning body. Uh, Jesus says the church is his body. It's got to be functioning rightly. And so all of chapter 18 has been dealing with this. Last week, Pastor David talked to us about humility and talked about caring for each other and hospitality. And today we're going to talk about how how God views all of us. And all of this is what we must have before we can ever walk out the doors and tell anyone else. So let's look first at verse 10. This is the charge. The charge is, do not despise the children of God. Do not despise the children of God. You can see this in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, this see that, that's just kind of a weird phrase in the ESV. Uh, It's really much more of a um, be careful, uh, see that you don't. it's, It's kind of a command is really what it is. It's saying, don't despise. Just make sure you're not despising. No one should ever think that you're despising one of the little ones. So what does this word despise mean? Well, it means to look down on someone. Literally, the word is kata foreno. Foreno means thinking and mind, and kata is down. So it's having a down mind. You're looking down on somebody. Not putting yourself up high. You see how this just plays right off of last week? When he talked about being humble, talked about putting others before you, and here he's saying, you you don't despise. Last week was an action check, right? It was like, don't do all these sins, don't lead someone astray. This week, it's an attitude check, right? Don't we need that sometimes? We need an attitude check. The attitude check is, where's your heart in this? It's not enough to just go through the actions, but where is your heart? And again, little ones, we tie back to verse 6. This means childlike believers. That's us. You know, what what does the word Christian even mean? It means little Christs, right? So the little ones here are us. If you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that's who he's talking about. Jesus is providing the rationale in this section for last week's passage. And he keeps emphasizing this, doesn't he? He keeps saying, you're children, you're little ones. He's emphasizing our weakness. Remember, all we bring to the table of our salvation is the sins that need to be forgiven. He doesn't choose the pick of the litter and say, well, you look really good in my church. I'm going to grab you. No, he says, I'm going to take the chief sinners and I'm going to save them to show how great I am. There's humility there. There should be absolute humility in all of us in the fact that we don't save ourselves. We can't pay God back for saving us. He did it because he is great. And this is where we need to be, and this is what we need to understand when it comes to God's word. Remember, Jesus says, nobody comes into the kingdom except as a little child. We are weak, we are dependent, and we need to remember that that we are not here. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, you see your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise, not many mighty, not many noble, but you are called. So we are here because God brought us here. We are here because he chose us. So I asked myself when I read this, why, why is there some despising going on? Like, why would that even be a thing? Like, it, it, could it be that, oh, they're so young? It could be that they're, they've got a temperament or something. I think the thing that maybe makes people want to despise others is what we saw last week 
when we had that phrase about don't cause someone to stumble. So you're saying I can't just be free and do whatever I want. I have to worry about what so-and-so thinks or if so-and-so is tempted or so on. Yes, we do have to worry about that. And you're not allowed to despise your fellow brother or sister because they are struggling. You're not going to despise them because they fail. You're not going to despise them because they are walking away. And he's going to tell us why here in a second. Despising another believer means you treat them with disrespect, refusing to see them as equal in God's eyes. So this is the command. Do not despise each other. Now let's look at the reasons. The, the, the reason overall is their place in God's plan. So Jesus is going to lay out, here are the steps, here are the reasons why. And so the, the big reason is that they are a part of God's plan. But the first of his three reasons is their relation to Jesus. Now, this is not in our text from this week. This is actually in our text last week. So I'm going to call this kind of a hidden reason because Jesus is building the logic of this argument on itself. And if we look back to verse 5, is that these children have a relationship with Jesus. They are in a relationship with Jesus. They are important to him. Throughout this passage, he says, the ones, the one, the ones, the one, back and forth. He's not saying just some of them. He's saying all of them are his. They belong to him. Don't look down on one, not even one. There's individual worth here. He says, these are mine. They belong to me. We'll see more on this here in a minute. Luke 10, 16 the one who hears you, hears me. This is Jesus talking. The one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. This is very similar to Matthew 18.5 that says, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. When we receive each other, when we welcome each other in, like Pastor David said so well last week, when we welcome each other in, we're welcoming in Christ. We're doing it as unto Christ. See, Jesus valued each and every sheep. So much so that he came down from heaven, which that in itself is amazing. But even more so is he put aside his rights. And even more so than that, he died a death for each of us. So Christ is one with his little ones. When you look down on one, no matter how lowly, how humble, how unattractive, how simple, how deprived, and you look at that person as if they were of no value, no use, no worth, you're doing that to Jesus because we are Jesus in this situation. Whenever someone receives you, they receive Jesus. He purchased each one of us with his blood on the cross. So that's the first reason. The first reason is these sheep have a relation to Jesus. They have a relationship with Jesus. The second re reason is their relation to angels. Their relation to angels. Look at verse 10. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Their angels. Now, let's just get it out there on the table. This is not proving that we all have guardian angels. Okay? This is a text that people will pull out. They call it a proof text where you take it out of context and it makes it say something else. That's not what this is saying. This is not guardian angels. And there's, a, there's lots of reasons. But let me point out two that are really obvious. Okay? The belief is that when you were born, everybody's given a guardian angel. Well, I got to say, these angels aren't doing their job. Because where does it say they are? 
They're in heaven looking at God, right? I mean, they're going, I got to watch this person. I'd rather be with God. So first of all, they're not doing their job. And second of all, you know, we see times where angels gather together. Does that mean that some guardian angels leave the shoulders of those people and come over here and help fight over here and those are all left of themselves? No, that doesn't work, right? Better understanding of this based on the text, based on the the wording here, is that there is a group of angels and it is their job when God says to, to go and help believers, which that's good news, right? Right? I mean, because come on, right? If if there's like any hierarchy in angels, I mean, some of us know we're not getting the big buff, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger one, right? We're getting a little scrawny one who's like, don't get me, right? That's the angel that I've got on my shoulder, amen? I mean, that's where you guys got it too, right? Let's be honest. So we, we need to be glad that there are scores of angels ready at the call when God says go. And that they can come in vast numbers. I mean, praise the Lord, that's good news. So let's look at this. It says, the angels are always seeing the face of my father. They always see the face of my father. This is a really interesting phrase. And and what this means is this means they are in the presence of God. Now it's like, okay, that's cool, whatever, right? But you got to think about it from a sovereign perspective, from a king perspective. You guys remember the story of Esther? Remember Esther's trying to get the king's attention? Even though she's like his girl, she can't just go in and see him. She has to be, you know, beckoned in. To be in the king's viewing, to be able to be seen by the king is a highest of the high. And to be an advisor of the king, to see the king face to face, eye contact, is a big deal. And that's what we see here is that this is saying these angels are in the presence of God, looking him in the face, looking on his glory, and these are the ones that he sends to care for his little children. These are the ones that are dispatched to take care of them. How amazing is that? The highest, most important angels who are in God's presence, if there is a hierarchy that only the best of the best, the Navy SEAL angels right? They are in Christ's, or in God's presence. And these are the ones he sends to care for you and I. How awesome is that? I mean, in the Bible, what's the reaction to angels? It's not like, oh, cool, you're an angel. No, it's like freak out, fall on the ground, and try to worship them. And these, the, the, the angels in God's presence, are the ones he sends out. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Translation, their job is to come and minister to us, to care for us. They did this with Jesus. Look at Matthew 4, 11, and Luke 22, 43. It says the angels came and ministered to Jesus. They came and they cared for Jesus. So to understand how this, like, layout of angels works, we need to, I'm going to give you an analogy from basketball. So some of you will, this will go right over your head, but that's fine. There's two kinds of defenses in basketball. There's man-to-man, that's where every person has one person guarding them, and then there's zone, it's where you're guarding an area and you kind of can move back and forth. The angels in God's presence are like the zone. They move to where they are needed and they come in power and they come in numbers. And praise be to God for that, that it's not just the individual. But here's the thing is, if the Father has angelic attendance, that he sends out to care 
for those who are in need, which is us, like the ones that we want to look down on. Oh, they're walking away. Oh, they're stumbling. Oh, they're this. God sends his angels to care for them. How dare we look down on them? How dare we look down at our fellow believers? Because God values his little ones. That's why we have to be careful how we treat each other. That's how we have to be careful about how we think of each other. Because God sends his chief angels to care for us. Now, a little side note on angels. Remember, angels are created beings. They are, they are God's assistants. They are not mythical. They're intelligent. They're personal. They don't have halos. They probably don't have the wings that we see in the pictures. They can appear in dreams. They can appear in bodily form. They can go all over the place. But their, go- their goal is to assist God. Their goal is to help God do what God does. We need to understand God's will, which we call providence, right? God's plan for everything. He controls everything, and sometimes he uses angels to do that. So when you are in that near accident on the freeway, when something bad almost happens, when you get a a diagnosis that's the opposite of the negative diagnosis you got earlier, sure, it might be God going, done. Or it might be he sent his angels. We won't know this side of heaven. But what we do need to know is that it's not luck. It's not chance. It's God's control. All right, now let's go to verse 11. Now, if you have your Bibles out, you'll notice there is no verse 11. Okay? Why do we not have a verse 11? Well, I'll tell you what verse 11 says. It's not a mystery. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That seems true. It should probably be there, right? Well, it's actually from Luke 19.10. Now, let me explain to you how this got there. And basically what happened was, as the Bible was being copied by hand, at some point somebody said, oh, that reminds me of Luke 19.10, and they wrote it down on the side. And then over time, people were copying, and somehow it migrated into the text. And so we know, based on the fact we can look at lots and lots of old copies of the Bible, that that was not originally there. So what does that mean? What it means is your Bibles are really, really accurate. They're super duper accurate. We can know almost exactly what Matthew wrote. And if you want more information about that, we have an adult Bible class that meets after church next Sunday, and we're going to be dealing with that again, okay? And if if you've missed those adult Bible classes, there's some cards out there with my email or phone number. Call me. I'll send you all the notes. We've dealt with this. The Bible is so accurate. And we're not just going to leave verses in there that don't belong. We're going to take the ones out that weren't there in the original. So praise be to God that we've got a Bible we can trust. All right, end of little aside. Let's get back into the text. Third reason why we are to not despise the little ones. Verse 12, their relation to the Father. So now we've we've got their relation to Jesus, we've got their relation to heavenly beings, and now we've got their relation to the Father. Look at verse 12. What do you think? If a man has 100 sheep and one of them is gone astray, Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Okay, so a couple quick things here before I explain this. One, 100 sheep is not that many. This is kind of a middle-of-the-road thing. 100 seems like a lot to me, right? I can't imagine 100 junior hires. Even for me, that's that's a bad deal. But 100 sheep, so this is not an exceedingly large, this is not a rich person, this is average. 
All right, then it says astray. They go astray. That last word, planomenon in the Greek, it's where we get the word planet. It means one that wanders because the planets didn't follow the same circle that the stars do. Instead, they would wander back and forth in this night sky. And so this means to wander away. Now, sheep are known for being stupid. They, 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 they follow something. Hey, look, there's a butterfly, and they walk off a cliff. They, they, they do things that are like that. And so either the sheep is too confused, or the sheep's too stupid, or the sheep's too sheeply, uh, just kind of doing its own thing. It's wandering. It's moving away. Remember last week, we saw that, that Jesus said, don't be the one that leads one astray. Don't do that. And so he's saying here, this one's just gone astray on its own. They don't need any help to go astray. So what does this astray, this wandering mean? Well, there's two kinds of lost, right? There's the absolute lost, and then there's the temporarily lost. So for example, you got your wallet in your back pocket, you're walking through a busy area, and all of a sudden you notice it's not there. You're not finding it. It's gone. Right? That's absolutely lost. You're never getting it back. But if you take it home, you take it out, and one of your kids decides to use it and dress up, and it disappears. It's in your house somewhere. You just don't know where it is. This is what Jesus is talking about here, and this word wandering helps us to see it. It's not that they're gone forever. It's that they're temporarily gone. So this is how it's different than Luke. Luke is saying they aren't even saved Jesus here is saying, they're mine, they just have gotten distracted. They've gotten led astray a little bit. But remember, John 18, 9, of those you gave me, I have not lost one. So what does this mean? What does going astray mean if we're in Christ, if we're a follower of Christ? This is meaning temptation. It's meaning sin. It's meaning thoughts and processes of thinking that are leading you down a path that is not in keeping with the truth of God's word. And praise be to God, we don't have to just figure it out ourselves. He comes after us. He pursues us. In the Old Testament, Israel's compared to sheep. Ha, Israel, yeah, you're the sheep. Well, in the New Testament, we're compared to sheep. Oh, so yeah, we're dumb just like the sheep. Jesus came to pay the price for our sinfulness to purchase us, the sheep, and now we belong to him. And since we belong to him, he's going to keep care of his investment. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid the iniquity on him, the iniquity of us all. That's that purchasing. We've all wandered. Every single one of us is off doing our own thing. Jesus's death purchases us, and we are now a part of his sheepfold. But still, we wander. Still, we want to go our own way, and he comes after us. Look at verse 13. And if he finds it, the sheep, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Rejoices. He exceedingly great joy, pleasure, happiness. I want to read you a, long, a little bit of a long Spurgeon quote here because I think it kind of helps us understand how is it fair that he feels more joy for the one that came back than for the ones that never went away. And this is what he says. The wandering one has caused great sorrow. We are all grieved that our brother should become a backslider, that an earnest Christian as he seemed to be has shown disgrace on his profession. Our Lord is even more grieved than we are. When the erring one comes back, we feel a new joy in proportion to the sorrow felt over the wanderer. 
is the joy manifested when he is restored. Moreover, our great apprehensions were aroused. We were worried. We feared that he was not the Lord's, that he was on his way to perdition, to hell. We trembled for him. We wept for him. There was black dread over all of us. But now the sheep is safe. The doubtful one is saved, restored to the fold. In proportion to the weight of our apprehension is the intensity of our relief. I love that. In proportion to the weight of our fear. Oh my gosh, they're on their way to hell. They're gonna die. And the intensity of the relief is that much higher and the joy is that much higher. When you've been rescued out of the sea, there's a greater rejoicing than if you'd never been in the sea to begin with. When you survive a disaster, there's greater rejoicing in the survival than there would have been if the disaster had not happened. The cure, surviving the the scourge of cancer and being cured on this backside, there's more joy than if you had never had that and had to consider that. I love that picture. That's the way the Lord looks at us. He is more joy in response to our returning. I love that. See, there's two kinds of lost. We have the unrepentant lost. Those are the ones that don't want anything to do with God and they're walking their own way and the wandering lost. They're the ones that know God but yet for a time have turned away when God grabs a hold of them and pulls them back. Isn't it encouraging that God wants us back? Isn't that encouraging that that God pursues us? He doesn't just let us go our own way. Oh, done with that one. But he pursues us. I mean, any of the parents in this room who've had kids know that there is at least one point when you lost them. You're not going to admit it right now, but you know in your hearts that it happened. And you get that momentary panic of, where did he go? Well, he's probably playing in the lake, right? And that's not a good thing. That may have happened to me yesterday, but I'm not going to admit it. So that, that, that frantic, that, that passionate pursuit that we have as parents is the same that God has for us. I love this. Psalm 103. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people. And we are the sheep of his pasture. See, here's the thing. Going back to my story about New York City walking those junior high boys around. The blonde one, the one with the hoodie, the, the two dark-haired kids, right? I had to count them the whole time. Why did I have to count them the whole time? Because I didn't know them. Now, I'd get to know them. I had them all in class, and they were just as much of a handful when they were seniors. But what's different is that I, I knew them then. If I took them on a trip, I would miss one of them. We take our kids on trips. I don't have to go, oh, you know, the tall one's missing again. Where did he go? No, I can say, Kyle is missing. Where is he? Where is he? See, there's an intimacy there. To be a part of Jesus' flock is to be known by him. He died for you. He knows you by name. The shepherds, they spent exorbitant amount of time with their sheep. You guys have seen sheep before, right? You can't tell them apart. They look the same. All right, they're just wandering around eating grass, and you're like, what's the big deal? And the sheep's like, well, that's Ferdinand, and that's this one, and that's this one. He knows them. It's the same thing for our shepherd. See, the thing is, Jesus died for all of those he knows. There won't be anyone in heaven that Jesus goes, oh, you're here? I didn't expect you. Every single one that he died for, every single one that he knows will be there. 
Look at what Psalm 139 says. Oh Lord, you've searched me and have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. He knows his sheep so well. He knows us personally. He knows us inside and out. And this is huge. See, Christianity was the first religion to make the individual matter. All throughout history, you had to be a part of a bigger clan to matter. Still that way in lots of part, a lot of the parts of the world. Here in America, we took that Christian idea and have gone way over the top in individualism. But the idea is, is that Jesus died for each of us individually, we're not saved by what our family has done. We're not saved by what our parents have done. We are saved by what Jesus has done for us individually because he knows his sheep. His sheep know him. He knows his sheep. This is why Christians have always taken care of those who can't take care of themselves. You know, during the time uh, in Rome when, when, when Christians were being murdered and, and killed for their faith, that Christians were the ones that were taking care of the babies that were abandoned in the streets. Christians were the ones that would rush into a plague-filled area to care for those who were dealing with plague, dealing with natural disaster. Christians have always flocked to the hurting. You don't hear about it in the news, but every time there's a hurricane, every time there's a, there's a natural disaster, there are Christians flocking there to care for the individual. It's why we are standing for life. It's why we oppose things like abortion on demand. Christians still do this. We have to stand for those. Every single individual matters. Why? Because look at what 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for us, every single one of us, individually, with individual love, with patient love, with seeking love, with rejoicing love. This is the love that God gives to his family. This is the love that God gives to us because we're a part of him. This kind of love is not the love that he gives to someone who has a passing fancy with God. Someone who made a confession of faith but then really had nothing else to do with him. This is not for someone in a fit of passion chooses Jesus. This is for someone who has entered the family. See, being a part of God's family comes with incredible privileges. The God of the universe knows you. The God of the universe cares about every minute detail about you and has a direction for your life, which means glorifying him, pointing you to him more and more in him. See, the one who we've been talking about this whole time, the, 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 the sheep that he goes after is the one who says, like the psalmist in, one, in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the follower of Jesus who knows him as their Lord and Savior. And then when wandering happens, his dear Savior comes and grabs and pulls him back. He knows them. The God of the universe knows you and pursues you because you're his kid. You're his dear possession. You're not a number in a crowd. You're not somebody else's problem. You're his kid. He's not distant playing in the universe with some nebulae somewhere else. 
No, he's intimately connected to you thanks to what his son did on the cross. And because of this connection, the only thing that makes sense is verse 14. Verse 14 is the logical conclusion of all of this. Verse 14, so, this is a concluding statement, therefore, it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus is driving it home. I don't want a single one of my little ones to perish. So it's shocking that anyone else would despise my little ones. This word perish here does not mean eternal destruction in this context. Instead, in this context, it means going towards a disaster, going towards devastation. And so what he's saying is, I can see where you're going, and I'm going to grab you and pull you back. And nobody ever likes that. No child, when they're trying to run into the street, likes it when dad goes, nope, you're not going there. But it's for their good. God's reclaiming love is central to his character. He is gracious to each of us individually. Of those whom God gave me, I have lost not one. Now, this is not saying everyone's going to be saved, but look at what it does say. It says he delights in the returning of his saved ones. He delights in that. Yes, he also delights in them turning from their sins the first time. We see that in our sister parable in Luke 15. But here he's saying, I delight in bringing you back to me. He doesn't get any delight over the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33, 11 says that. But he does rejoice. So get it out of your minds that God's up in heaven going, wagging his finger at you. Oh, I can't wait to zap those bad ones. No, God's mind towards us is, I can't wait to bring them back. And then the Luke passage, I can't wait to bring them in. This is his heart. He rejoices over us when he brings us back. So today, if you know him as your Lord and Savior, what delights the Lord should also be at the forefront of our minds. What delights the Lord is sharing more of him. See, those wandering sheep, they don't get to be near the shepherd. They're, they're miles away. Jesus is saying, come be a part of the shepherd. Be known by your shepherd. Be cared for by your shepherd. When we wander away, we remember that he will come after us. So what are those things that are tempting you right now to want to wander away? What are those things that are drawing your attention away from the purity, the truth of God's relationship to you? Sometimes it's thought processes. Sometimes it's, it's the cares of the world. Sometimes it's anxiety. It's worry about something in your life. What are those things that you are flirting with that are taking your eyes off the Lord? Confess them and allow him to be bigger in your life. How comforting it is that he pursues us. But not only that, how comforting it is that he knows us. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're not following him, do you see how good he is? Do you see how good of a shepherd he is? You're, you're a sheep wandering around doing your own thing, trying to stave off the wolves, trying to keep yourself alive when there is a perfectly, amazingly great shepherd right over here who wants you to be a part of his flock. He commands you to be a part of his flock. And when he takes you in, he doesn't ever cast you out. But his promise is this, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. 
Rest from your wandering. Rest from your going your own way. And today, turn to our shepherd. He is good. He loves you and he gets pleasure from you becoming one of his sheep or returning to his sheepfold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word today. Lord, thank you for the, the, the beauty of your care for us. As our shepherd, you are the amazing shepherd. Help us to see that. Help us to be willing to be known by you, to be loved by you, and be cared for by you. Thank you for feeling the joy, Lord, as you grab us and bring us back. Lord, we need that. Lord, help us to see you more clearly now as we finish worshiping together. In Jesus' name, amen.